As a, oh yeah, he's got that on his license plate. He's a colorectal oh, guy. Oh, is that right? Yeah. All right, this is with uh, Dr. Adam Abudili, uh, MD, um, talking about the science of CBD. Hey, welcome back to the CBD Northwest Expo. Uh, I'm your host, Christopher Chan of Happy Hour Radio. And I'm always curious about the science behind things. My parents are doctors, my sister's a doctor, and I like to play doctor. But here I get to play scientist. And I have the chance to speak with Dr. Adam Abodili. Uh, Adam, welcome to Happy Hour. Well, thanks for having me. Let's talk about uh, your your credentials. Sure. So I'm uh, I'm a uh, dual board certified surgeon in upstate New York, Lake Placid, New York. Um, I hold a board certification in general surgery, but also in colorectal surgery, also uh, known as gastrointestinal surgery. Um, and I've been uh, in practice now for about ten years, treating patients with uh, with a variety of ailments, GI ailments, uh, specializing in GI cancers and inflammatory bowel disease conditions. And I've been incorporating cannabis therapy um, into my patients' protocols now for somewhere between six to eight years. Um, New York State became legal for medicinal purposes um, um, in, two th- in January of 2016. And so then, when that happened, you know, my experience with it really began to began to explode. And a lot of it came from an, an omission of guilt from my patients, who would tell me, "Hey, this stuff really works, despite all this medications that you're putting." me on for conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. Um, and so I knew there was something to it, and but I wasn't sure how to explain to them why it was working. So, um, and I also found that patients with several other GI ailments, irritable bowel syndrome, for example, uh, would tell me that marijuana helped them tremendously. And so I really needed to find an explanation of why. As a scientist, you know, I don't like to just tell people, hey, or take this and it's going to work. And I say, well, why? And I say, just just trust me, it's going to work. I needed to prove first myself why this can be used as a medication. Um, But then I also needed, what was also important was to be able to relay that to my other providers, other doctors, to get them to understand that there was real science behind this. And this wasn't just a group of individuals looking to get high from (laughs) marijuana. And how did you find the science? I mean, obviously with the internet advent, and you said it six to eight years ago, so Mm -hmm. uh, you were able to search some of the things. But was there some local resources, or did you have to get uh, into the lab and a microscope and all that? Yeah, so there's certainly no local resources other than just patient testing testimonials, which uh, is not real science. So I scoured through the literature for almost 10 years, finding every sort of article I can find on the science for a variety of of ailments. And once I started to realize there was some real science to it, I actually took a trip to uh, Israel uh, to meet with who we consider to be the the godfather of of cannabis, Dr. Raphael Meshulam, um, at the Hebrew University. And I was absolutely blown away by the science that was being conducted. Uh, Their medical center there, um, even by United States standards, is is an absolute phenomenal hospital, and they have a whole research building. It's about six stories tall, dedicated solely to the science of of cannabis. Um, Pretty much each floor level of that building is dedicated to cannabis for particular ailments, whether it be for cancer and uh, inflammation, pain, um, metabolism, and so, well, let's talk about cannabis first. So cannabis is a plant, and basically it's high in fiber, right? It's a very fibrous plant. Mm-hmm. It has nutritious, nutritious seeds and oils 
that are located in seeds. It also has uh, psychoactive effects. So you can you can breed cannabis or, or uh, grow cannabis for sp specific traits. So some will will be very um, intoxicating with the THC tetrahydrocannabinol. Is that what it's called? Tetrahydrocannabinol. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other is is actually used for making rope. And like George Washington did this back in you know <laughs> when he right. was, when, because you had to live and subsist on the land. And so there are a lot of wild cannabis plants growing throughout America that you might travel by. But um, how how do you see the plant? Is the plant just a flower these days? Uh, no, certainly the plant holds several different uh, potential properties um, that are useful for, for society as general. You know, we talk about the, the medicines and medicinal aspect of it, you know, which come from the cannabinoids, particular compounds found within, within the flowers of the plant, but also terpenes, which are natural aromatic compounds, which we're all familiar with. You know, the compounds found in lavender, for example, is a, is a terpene called linalool, which is, can be very sedating and relaxing. So there's, there's all these different types. Of, of compounds we were in yep, yep yep you got it there's a wine person i we recognize that because this is and we now looking at the science with, with knowing those are esters and terpenes and uh polyphenols and things like that yep all right and we also know that that there's other com the other reasons that this plant uh, has purposes you know just the fiber from the stalks of the plants are you know being used for industrial purposes um the um the cannabis or hemp the hemp seeds themselves can are very rich in, in vitamin E and omega-3 fatty acids and are a great nutrient source. So, you know, the plant, you know, it offers, you know, medicinal properties, uh, you know, um, textile properties for its fiber and then also just as a, as a health food source as well when it comes to the actual seed oil itself. With the history of civilization, why haven't we found a, um, a country or a, a tribe that actually uses cannabis on a regular basis outside of the Rastafarians? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think a lot of it has just uh, come from the uh, political landscape and the legislation that has developed, you know, over over centuries. Um, you know, we've been using medicinal uh, plants uh, for a variety of ailments, and, and traces um, of the use of medical can of cannabis for a variety of medical ailments can be traced back to 2800 BC. And um, uh, there is actually a, a where was that? Was that Egypt? It, it, no, actually in Asia. Asia, yeah, okay. and in Asia. And actually, um, what was particular interest to me is that there was a surgeon um, back around 2000 BC who used to mix the cannabis flower with a particular type of, of wine to use as an anesthetic agent for surgery, performing surgical procedures. That's right, because uh, they found history of 7,000 BC, they, they've recognized the first uh, alcoholic concoction from uh, China. Correct. Yeah, yeah, so we say the first bartender's Chinese. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. But uh, what really set us back, um, you know, was in the early 1900s when um, the cannabis plant became uh, associated with other behaviors, you know, uh, and there's certainly lots of, you know... And uh, psychosis, right? I mean, wasn't this the big scare, this... this Right, this whole reefer madness, reefer madness, and that there. it was going to make you do all sorts of make people act crazy and all sorts of stuff. And the reality, unfortunately, is that was never, never true. And you know, as a physician, I'm excited to be involved in this because I also feel that um, physicians had a big role of why this became illegal. Okay, and there was a report uh, put out in 1910 by a physician by the name of Abraham Flexner, and this, and he, and what he did is he surveyed United States as well as Canadian medical 
medical schools and medical institutions asking them about the use of medical cannabis. And based upon his survey, he, he um, developed what he called the, the or, uh, published the Flexner Report, which basically discredited the use of cannabis. And um, what was unfortunate was about that it was just because they said, we just don't have enough science. Nobody was necessarily denying that it worked, but they said they just didn't have enough science. And what was unfortunate then was that and then in 1937, when the Mar Marijuana Tax Act um, passed, um, which made cannabis illegal, well, now we no longer had access to study it. And shortly after that, scientific research, which had been being conducted, which didn't get published till after 19, until after it, was, um, it became illegal, did some studies start to actually come out saying, you know, wait, there's probably some real science here about what it can be used, but because of our inability to actually study it, um, we lost the ability to understand it. And at That's interesting because I know universities where um, there's the botanist program and the horticulture programs, and growing up, my buddy, when I was in fifth, sixth, seventh grade, his older brother was at UW, and he brought back some orange skunky <laughs> Afghani yeah. kind of weed and so they were growing it there but yeah. it, it was there's no research from a university um, in the United States or North America that was providing substantive um, analysis there was uh, there was one specific institution um, that was able to actually stockpile some some cannabis to study it the problem is that they've looked back at this cannabis and that cannabis is not the cannabis that we have today it was not nearly as rich in cannabinoids and terpenes and you know this plant has really evolved you know humans have really kind of forced that evolution to kind of breed for specific strains but the cannabis plant that they were studying was not the cannabis that we have today is uh, you know when I talk about wine I talk about the ripeness of fruit we're all familiar with um, the green banana and the brown banana right does a does the brown banana hemp plant have more properties or is there a certain window of ripeness or um, concentration? And, and tell me what you know about that. Uh, well, what I can tell you is that is that there's certainly an optimal time uh, when the flower buds, and um, you know I'm not the one I'm not on the growing side, so I can't speak uh, too much about that. But what I can tell you is that there is obviously an optimal time when the flowers are their most ripe, where meaning they're going to have the most potent concent concentrations of cannabinoids and terpenes. And we do know that as the cannabis plant um, ages, once it's dried, so it can then be consumed, whether as a as a, an inhalational form. Or, or converted to its oil, uh, used for its oils, we know that over time that cannabinoid profile can actually be, can change. The terpenes are, are very volatile, so their ter the terpene profiles will decrease over time. But then also the cannabinoids themselves will actually change. So for example, um, older marijuana or cannabis will actually have higher levels of CBN in another particular cannabinoid. And the reason is, is that THC over time actually gets de degraded into CBN. CBN is very sedative. It has very sedating properties, which is why a lot of the cannabis strains now that, you know, are more for, for sedation are using are playing on CBN, but they're also playing on, on other terpenes as well. Um, so the, the plant will change you know, over time just through an aging process. Now, are terpenes in um, THC, CBD, the cannabinoids, are they uh, commensurate with, if you smell a lot of terpenes, do you know that's going to have a lot of CBD or cannabino uh, cannabinoids? No, not, not at all. I mean, there's uh, there's strains which are very, you know, the, the, the plant... Um, 
is a very is a, is a very adaptable plant. And if you take two plants with the same identical genes and you plant them in different environments, they're going to create different cannabinoid and terpene profiles. You know, the terpenes themselves uh, and uh, you know are are meant for several different reasons. One is they can uh, detract prey from eating the plants. Um, they can also then also attract pollinating insects and pollinating animals to them. Um, and so, you know, it's uh, the, the, but but certainly the smell or the aroma or the terpene profile does not indicate cannabinoid content. That Interesting. So does the female plant actually hold more or is there some uh, um, validity to having a male plant? I know yeah. from, you know, my horticulture days that there's two different species and of yeah. course in a hermaphrodite. Right. Yeah. So really it's all comes down to the female plants. Okay. The female plants where all the flowers are. And so, uh, you know, uh, female, female. The ganja plant. goddess. Yeah, the, you got it. You got it. The females got us on this one for sure. Uh, they, they, uh, they, they definitely all the, all the magic. And when it comes to the medicinal properties come from the, the female flowers. So as a doctor providing a prescription, how did you ascertain specific doses? Did you have some clinical trials? Did you say, well, just try this? I mean, obviously you want to know what you're giving your, your patient. And were you able to create a pure form or was it a, because they talk about full spectrum and isolate. Um, how did you approach that? Uh, well, dosing remains one of the biggest challenges in this industry because um, dosing is, we're all very unique and one size does not fit all. And we are also all very genetically different when it comes to our cannabinoid system. It's what we call genetic polymorphisms, meaning that we all have very differing cannabinoid receptors as well, you know, and so how we respond to the plant is very different. And now that has implications also as to, well, dosing, how, how much would an individual need, what, what profile would they need when it comes to a particular strain of, of, of cannabinoid and terpene. Uh, profile. So dosing has remained one of the most, the biggest challenges that we have. What we, what we do know is that um, broad or full spectrum products, which contain more than just an isolate of like say pure CBD or pure THC, we know tend to work much better through what we call the entourage effect. And it's how all these cannabinoids and terpenes, as well as several other compounds such as flavonoids um, within the plant, all work together to have the medicinal effect. Interesting. Um, so terpenes, are, are terpenes healthy? They can be, absolutely. You know, they, they certainly have several um, medicinal properties. We've been, people have been using terpene, which is a, which is really nothing more than an essential oil for, for a long time. Um, there's, uh, you know, the reason that, uh, you know, particular beers, uh, you know, smell the way they do. You sure. Know, for like hops, hops, yeah, yeah. hops and this type of stuff. And that's also why they have some sedating, sedating properties. But um, again, the classic ex example, which I like to use is that of, of lavender. Uh, lavender has linalool. It's a sedating um, terpene. It's, uh, it's why, you know, we, we, we put it in our diffusers at night, uh, you know, to help us go to sleep. Interesting. Uh, speaking with Dr. Adam Abadili, and uh, uh, he's a, a gastroenterologist, a colorectal surgeon, and a board-certified uh, well, uh, general surgeon. Uh, you wrote a book. Yes. And when did this book come out, and, and how long did it take you to put it together? This, t this book took about uh, two years for me to put together, and it really started out more as uh, frequently asked questions uh, that I received from my patients, as well as uh, people who wanted to, um, you know, purchase, uh, you know, or, or, or you know, acquire the, our products, which we, we currently, um, you know, uh, manufacture. Um, and wait, so you're on the manufacturing side too? You actually have uh, interests in a 
CBD company? I do. I actually am a CMO, a chief medical officer and co-founder of a company called Reserve MD. And I do all the formulations of, of a variety of cannabinoid products. Um, and um, so I needed a way to explain that to, to, to consumers, but also to, to my patients. And so what started out as a, as what I found is that patients would say, I have arthritis. How can it help my arthritis? And I realized that the science is very complicated. And so I would start having a discussion with somebody hoping it would last for one minute and turn into about a 30 minute conversation. And when you have people day in, day out asking you these these questions, I just became inundated. So I started to make a, a book that was started out as more of a frequently asked questions. But then as I built onto it, I started to incorporate, well, why does arthritis, why can this help for arthritis? And so I really dug deep into the science and pulled kind of what was the most relevant uh, literature that's out there to provide some validity to, to, uh, to the book as, as well. And Interesting. With your, with your credentials, uh, you seem to have gone astray from your original medical practice. Obviously, when you're talking about uh, uh, anti-inflammatories, uh, that's, that's a different science in medicine, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about, is it, uh, what, what are some um, what are some of the, the fields that is that uh, blood work and uh, yeah well I would say yes I would say yes and no I mean you know yeah yeah but remember I, I'm a true believer that a lot of our illnesses are related and linked to inflammation and and you know inflammation plays such an important role in our homeostasis which means our body is able to keep at a level state under times of, of stress and our GI tract is no exception to that and the classic example is inflammatory bowel disease where you have your body attacking itself and causing excess inflammation so um, you know and we also know that excess inflammation can can lead to obesity it can lead to diabetes it can um, even lead to cancers excessive inflammation is known to lead lead to cancers and it's the job of the endocannabinoid system to regulate that, and that's where the cannabinoids play into all this. Interesting. Your book's called The Surgeon's Perspective on the Science and Truth of Cannabis. That's a big statement there. That's a big title. Um, can, can Is this a, a standalone book? Are there other um, research books or, or manuals or, or papers that have been published um, in, congruent with your, your thoughts in this book? Well, you know, as as a, a, a surgeon, and um, you know, which I by by the way, I still is my still full time job. I'm still very active as a surgeon, very busy surgeon. Um, you know, I believe that what's most important is that if that we know that there is benefits to this plant, and my job is to make sure that people know the truth of what is real and what's not real. And my most valuable asset, of course, is my is my medical degree, my medical license. So no matter what I say or is gonna be based upon what the, the best science that's out there and, and being truthful about that science. You know, the reality and the truth is that we, we are still lacking a lot of this science. It, the, the tough thing is that it's very difficult to study. And the reason it's difficult to study is that it's not a single isolated compound. The FDA, for example, likes to work with single compound molecules. That's what they like to approve. Right. In the you, little, the, and when you get a prescription, you open it up, and there's always a, a little picture of the molecule. Correct. Correct. So where unlike um, the cannabis plant, which has hundreds, if not thousands, of different chemicals within it, um, trying to find consistency in that um, 
because these plants will grow differently and they'll you know and getting from batch to batch consistency is very difficult it's it's nearly impossible for the FDA to really study a, a compound they don't they're not interested in studying compounds that are consist of hundreds of different molecules um, it just makes them very hard to it makes it very hard for us to draw any conclusions about it so that's one of the biggest challenges you know we have studies on the isolates isolated CBD and isolated THC the problem is that those studies show benefit but not as good as the majority of the anecdotal and smaller studies show about the full the full plant itself interesting um, as as I view this new industry an emerging industry and it's really the wild frontier and and there's a little bit of snake oil salesmanship here because even when I talk to some of the producers they're not quite sure uh, they have their own proprietary extract they've got their own full spectrum strain they've got their ideas of particular uh, uh, percentages of CBD and their solutions uh, and it's still like you said there's no science behind it so there's and as everyone's being different that everyone's got their own specific elixir. Right. How, how do you think that's going to pan out? Is Big Pharma going to have to step in and, and really create some measured control that these this is what we know because they've got the resources and research? Well, I think, I think a few comments on that. I think, you know, everybody says they have their own elixir, but the reality is that the majority of products on the, on the market right now come from, you know, some main sources. And so, you know, and that's one of the ways that we differentiate our our, our our company and our products is that you know we formulate our products by adding in particular terpenes and cannabinoid profiles, which we believe are going to have the best um, uh, outcome for yeah, particular so you, elements. You're a scientist behind this, but but some of these producers are, seem like you know what I believe in it. This is my gig, and I, I'm really pr- creating this like a making my own kind of cookies. Right, and that's and that's where transparency comes in, and transparency comes in through certificate of analysis. So if somebody really wants to know if they've got a good product, they want to know what's in it. And the only way you can know in you know what's in it is that to make sure that the products are third party tested and that you know consumers have access to to this to this data. Um, and you're right, there is a tremendous amount of snake oil, and by snake oil, I, I mean what people are claiming is in the the product oftentimes is not. There's been two actually studies, one out of Amsterdam and one recently published from the United States looking at what what really are, are people really getting what they what they claim that what, what they're purchasing. And, sure, yeah, and it's got all these different milligrams of CBD stuff and you get correct. it and like, you know, it doesn't work, I need three of those. It's just, it's untested. Right, and, and what the study showed was that only about 60 to 70 percent of what people were think thought they were buying was actually what they were purchasing and what's more scary about that is that comp products that said they had no THC in it for example had THC in it things that said they had CBD oftentimes didn't have any CBD in it and this is where we have to regulate ourselves because back to your point if not then the government's going to step in and that's why it's extremely important for us and which is why I'm you know happy to be involved in this this industry a really kind of not act as a I don't want to call myself a police agent in this but but to give guidance and to and to make sure that you know that we're making the proper claims and uh, you know what we can appropriate claim and that the science is headed the right direction so we avoid snake oil well we would certainly always appreciate an authority on it and uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you can someone overdose on CBD uh, currently right now the answer is no we know doses as high as 1500 milligrams are which is which is very high uh, for what anybody would be taking. We know our doses that are safe. Can we speak about 
uh, that, again, as a scientist, I'm going to tell you what we know. What we know is that doses up to 1,500 milligrams have been extremely well tolerated and not associated with any overdose. Doses above that, I can't tell you because there's no science. However, I could tell you that realistically, doses much higher than that are How does the body safe. metabolize it? Is it through uh, respiration or perspiration or uh, from the uh, liver? Yeah, it's actually metabolized by the liver. And it's metabolized by the same set of enzymes that metabolize, you know, uh, toxins in our system and, and drugs within our system that we may take for a variety of other ailments as well. Interesting. So uh, at this point, um, it's still a wild frontier, and yet you are creating, you're on the forefront of the science and truth behind cannabis. Correct. Absolutely. I like that. What's your website? It's www.reservemdhealth.com. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Adam Abadili, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you very much for having me.